Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a monthly gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones. And today we're talking about Hades. Developed and published by Supergiant Games, uh, it was released for Windows and Switch on September 17th, 2020, which followed a lengthy early access period dating all the way back to December of 2018. So although this has been an early access since a couple years back, we all waited until 1.0 to officially check this out and immediately knew we (laughs) needed to do a podcast on it. Yeah, I bought this on day one. I do believe this is the first time Supergiant has ever actually done an early access game. I know you guys have played several of their previous entries. None none of those have ever been early access before, so it's an interesting uh, way for them to handle it this time. It's an interesting way to go about making and marketing in the game, because games are such a hit-driven industry. Um, if you have an early access game, it kind of proves that the game and the concept and the mechanics are working well and that you can put more time into developing the content for that. Yeah, that was kind of a mission of theirs uh, for getting this out there was to um, embrace more community feedback and, and incorporate that back into the game so that they would end up you know, making the best thing, game that they could possibly make by uh, incorporating all of those new ideas that might have not come from, from their team itself. Yeah, and I would argue that it, this actually worked. So. You guys listening are never going to believe this, but this is a roguelike, and I suggested it to the other guys. Uh, this That's is, right. <laughs> uh, well, we'll talk about this throughout, but this is probably the first and only roguelike that I've been like completely on board with. So I mm-hmm. think w- whatever they did, uh, uh, getting that feedback from the community, it really worked, and I love what they put out for us. I feel like on board is a bit of an understatement. I think Clint <laughs> might have as much time put into this game as me and Brian put together. I might have as much time as the developers do. I'm not 100% <laughs> certain. I've only had it for two and a half weeks, so I'm really trying here. Now, speaking of the developer, this is a very storied developer, Supergiant Games, founded in 2009, came out with their big hit Bastion in 2011, followed up by Transistor and Pyre, Pyre being one of the games me and Brian did a podcast on before we were recording the podcast, just shooting the shit about it. Yeah, it's the hidden lost episode of Pixelated Playgrounds. Um, you know, it's, it's on the deep web somewhere, just look hard enough. If I remember correctly, I think that's the one the month before we started recorded, recording. So I'm just saying you guys missed out. Yeah, uh, I've, I have been a fan of Supergiant Games pretty much since their founding. I played Bastion pretty close to after it came out, Transistor and Pyre as well. Um, you know, this developer is so distinct in their style. You know, Amir Rao, the co-founder... Uh, and Darren Korb, the composer, and Greg Kasavin, the designer and writer, have been together for all of these in very key roles, along with, of course, their artist, Gen Z, who makes all of these games just look incredible. So uh, to me, this is a studio with like a very distinct house style, and uh, I always look forward to seeing something new from them. I really love uh, Darren Korb's work as well, especially some of his guitar licks and riffs are just first class. I think one of the songs from uh, Bastion, Spike and Rail, is in my top three video game songs. Yeah, I actually went out of my way to listen to the songs outside of the game uh, for Hades. Uh, I'm, I haven't played as much as the other games, surprisingly, but uh, 
And I even love the the link you sent, Josh, where the guy was like, hey, here's how you play this song on guitar if you'd like to play. And he was like super excited because other people wanted to learn his songs. So, yeah, definitely a really cool thing where they're embracing the community in all aspects of this game, not just in, you know, the crowd feedback, early access, but also with, you know, the sharing of their music and creative process. Uh, one thing that I watched in the, the run up to talking about this game was um, the no clip documentary Developing Hell. Uh, by Danny O'Dwyer and his company Noclip, which is really cool and, and tells a story about how this game went from its early access phase all the way through to its release. Highly recommended. Do they talk about maybe some of the ways they embraced the early access and took the feedback from the players and incorporated it? They do. They talk about the patching process and what they they included in each patch and uh, basically how they, they went about sort of meeting, looking at reviews, looking at what streamers did. Uh, it was it was pretty eye-opening, honestly. Uh, it even went into some more in-depth technical stuff in the run-up to their 1.0 release. Uh, you're going to love this, Josh. Bastion was originally written in XNA and then moved to C-sharp. <laughs> it sure was. No, it so, was it, um, written in XNA and I think moved to Mono Game. Uh, XNA being in C-sharp, the computer language itself. Right, so they... Uh, they basically have utilized that same engine and tweaked it and upgraded it since then. And now finally with Hades, uh, ported it to some native C subset for, uh, you know, portability and performance reasons. Hmm. Interesting. It was cool too. I watched a bit of that last episode. They were kind of talking about how they were just getting ready for the final push of the game just as COVID hit. And then they've had to like, re- you know, revamp their entire system. They abandoned their office. I believe it's in San Francisco, correct? Mm-hmm. And then and then just uh, kind of do this all remotely from home. It was kind of fun to watch and interesting to see how they've met this challenge. But more than anything, I'm not the hugest fan of early access games, but some of my favorite games come from early access. And I believe that when a company does it right and engages the community properly, they get some of the most special end result because it's made for us and it's almost like by us too, which is kind of really cool. It's, uh, it's certainly a potent uh, option when used well. Um, so what... What was the premise that they iterated on through all of this, um, all of this player feedback? Basically, the idea behind uh, Hades was the player takes on the role of, of Zagreus, the prince of the underworld, the son of Hades, who is trying to escape from the the underworld and get away from his father and join the gods on Mount Olympus. Uh, but actually, it is to find his mother. I thought this actually made made sense. Like. Okay, so most roguelike games, it's, it's, it's run-based, right? You die, you start at the beginning again, and a lot of times that I've got severe ADD. I need a reason to continue to do the same thing over and over and over again, or I lose interest. But this did very well in keeping a consistent narrative, and it made sense that you continued to do the same thing again and again. And it kept enough of that string between each of those runs that it kept it interesting for me. Having the main character be a god or a demigod of the dead who... Of course he resurrects each time after he's killed and has to start everything over again. I thought that was a really good stroke of storytelling. It allowed them to weave a consistent narrative thread throughout each of the runs you had. You'd go out, you'd die, you'd come back, you'd get some new dialogue, some new story bits, some new information, and you'd be able to You feel like you're making progress even if you didn't make it out of hell. Yeah, I wasn't even mad, honestly. If I died, like, I'd be annoyed, but then I'd be like, okay, I get to go back. And then it's this constant loop of combat, 
and then you go back and then you get a story arc for a little bit and then it's more combat and then more story arc it's almost like a, a, a reward system almost yeah definitely if there's one thing i love it's the a diegetically uh, justified mechanic uh basically that the rebirth of zagreus with each run you know it makes sense mechanically it makes sense in the story as well uh, and that combination always makes me feel good about what's happening on the screen. You know, you don't have to think twice about game logic. It just sort of, oh yeah, that, that's how that would work. Of course, it makes sense. Yeah, and, and, and they do a good job with the humor of it too. Like you go out, mm-hmm. you fight, and then you come back, and then Hades is like mocking you for how stupidly you died the last time. And then you get to go off and, and meet your friends, and then you go out and do it again. And that just makes it all so much more uh, satisfying when you finally do reach that success point. The game definitely has some great writing to it. I mean, even I think I'm 50-something runs in, and I'm still getting new dialogue for, you know, the boss you face every time you get out of the first level or things like that. Um, I I feel like it's never going to end. I feel like they must have 100 or 200 runs worth of dialogue in there. It really does seem like the the font of new things that the characters will say to each other and the combinations therein are never-ending. It's it's staggering how I've literally never seen a piece of repeated dialogue yet, you know, as we said, dozens of hours in. And on top of that, it's all really good writing. Clint, you touched on the fact that they, you know, sort of make fun of each other and uh, treat death very casually. You know, the casual way that Hades and Zagreus regard death is really interesting because, you know, it's all around them. They're literally immersed in it. Yeah, Greek mythology is actually one of my favorite settings to begin with. So I was already, this game already had a leg up before it started for me. But the way they handled it with that, like, tongue-in-cheek humor, like, I really... I loved every bit of this this story. Honestly, I think so. You guys are like thirty five hours in. I'm about fifty five hours in. I'm I still haven't seen a repeat on dialogue. They still do new things every once in a while. When, right when I think they're about to tone it down, they do something new, and I'm like, wait a minute! Like this is what happens to the guy that only played for thirty hours? He doesn't get to see any of this. Like <laughs> only for thirty hours, man. Yeah, I initially felt like a pang of guilt because my first run that I encountered the first uh, area boss, I beat her and I was like, oh no, I'm not going to get to see all of those failure dialogue choices. Oh no, I still saw them. Don't worry. I've died <laughs> oh, to her yeah. many times since then. <laughs> You'll get there. Oh, and then when you beat it, there's a whole, well, we won't even, I don't, I don't want to spoil anything, but once you beat the game once, which this is the other great thing about this game versus other roguelikes, there is a, if you put your time into it and you, and you work on it, you will beat this game. It has mm-hmm. it has a path to success, and then there's a million reasons to keep going, and 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 they really up the stakes and a whole bunch of other things to make it continually interesting too. I, I want to go back real quick to something you said about the choice to use the Greek pantheon, Clint, because I agree that this was such a good choice. Like it's such an easy shorthand for personality types of the gods that you're encountering and the mechanical hooks that they'll probably represent. It just it's something that like is intuitive to everyone because either you've heard of the stories, you've watched a movie with these stories, or you've read them. And it's uh, a stroke of genius to use that as sort of the the character and story setting hook. It's such a well-known cultural, kind of like cultural background information. Like I'm sitting at, I think, seven or eight successful escapes from Hades or from um, from the underworld. Uh, that's where you clear the game, and I think at after you do ten successful ones, shit goes down and things change. And just because of like my knowledge of the Greek myths, I kind of already know what's going on, and I can see them hinting towards us and building up to that. So it's kind of 
it's almost like it's pre-spoiled for me, but they do it in a way that's fun and the way that's interesting too. Even if you know where it's going, you you're you enjoy the ride. I promise it's it's worth the payoff. I've 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 done all that. I'm in uh I guess post game but not post post game. They have an absurd amount of content in this game if that wasn't like clear already like you beat the game and then you have to beat the game a number of times and then you get to the other end game and then there's another other other <laughs> end game. I'm at 55 hours and I haven't even gotten to that point yet. So there's a lot to see here. I think this game costs 25 bucks. I think previously I said and a previous podcast that Hollow Knight was probably your best bang for buck uh, for <laughs> for entertainment. This is this is contending that right now. I would say, yeah, very interesting, and and I totally agree. Um, I mean, you run into so many interesting, you know, characters and uh, entities as you you make your way through the game and and out of uh, the underworld. The Chthonic gods, uh, you know, Hades, Nyx, Thanatos, Hypnos. Uh, as well as Olympian gods who are granting you boons and helping you sort of mechanically develop your character and sort of are in your corner as you're battling your way out. Beyond everything else, the voice acting was just stupid good. Like every last one of these guys was was very well cast. My personal favorite, just because of the voice acting, was Dionysus. Imagine uh, Mr. Douchey Frat Boy personified and you've got the god of wine himself. Zag man, how's it going? Look, you have got to get here with the rest of us already. We've been saving you a spot. <laughs> yeah. On top of that, they they brought in some people from their own studio, and and of course Logan Cunningham, who is notable for being the original narrator for Bastion. You know, he won loads of awards for that, and he's doing the voices of Hades, Poseidon, Achilles, Charon, and of course the narrator for this game. But Darren Korb himself actually voices a host of characters, including Zagreus, which I thought was pretty interesting that they're sort of insourcing from their own company and finding all of these, you know, new talents that were just sort of latent. You know, obviously Darren Korb's always been known as a fantastic composer, but as far as I'm aware, this is his first lead role as a voice actor. Oh, wait a minute. The guy the guy playing the music was the guy... Who who is Orpheus? I, I didn't know who that was. Who's singing his voice? Because that was absurdly good. I think that's actually Darren Corb as well. What a talented uh, dude. That guy has a set of pipes on him. Uh, on top of that, you get to meet Eurydice, who is Orpheus's um, uh, muse and... Uh, definitely spend there has an interesting side arc that the game goes down i haven't finished it yet but clint i think you have i don't know how much of a spoiler you want to get into there but that storyline was very compelling to me we're gonna do a no spoilers uh no spoiler cast here because i i don't want to take away from anybody's runs here but i would that was definitely one i was more interested in as well and it's definitely worth uh pursuing for sure Mm-hmm. and you can't forget cerebus the dog I have uh, a real dog upstairs, a cute one, and I still smile when petting Cerebus. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny going from games like God of War, where all the gods are total bastards, to this game where they're like minor douches, not total bastards. But but it it, it has a more tongue-in-cheek fun approach to them. I still I love this story no matter how many different ways they tell it. I think this was a really cool way to imagine the whole... Greek Pantheon. I watched Hercules with my six-year-old, uh, six-year-old, good lord, six-month-old, uh, after I quote-unquote beat this game, and it's just oh. funny, funny to see all the different ways that this story is told, but... 
Hercules or Heracles in, in the Greek pantheon, <laughs> strangely at, uh, absent from this uh, this game. Which they, they bring up multiple times. times but yeah. he never shows up as a character. At least not where I Or does he? Yeah. Future you're, patch? Hmm? Who knows? <laughs> you're not at 55 hours yet. You don't know. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. Uh, well, speaking of what makes up those 55 hours, maybe we should go into the mechanics of this game. Oh, the combat in this game is just first-rate combat here. Uh, definitely, I'd almost say the star of the show is the type combat loop they have in the game, where you select a weapon at the beginning of each run, one of six weapons. Uh, you get different boons from the different Olympian gods that give you new powers. And it's that combination that makes up its roguelike goodness. Yeah, every single run you get something different. Like like Josh was saying, like yeah, you, you can pick one of six weapons at the beginning of the run, but every run has a different set of boons. So the uh, the Olympian gods are kind of trying to screw over their uh, estranged brother Hades by helping you get out. And basically they all have a, a set of moves that they can offer to you. And I've like I've said, I've played this through probably 60 plus times, 60 plus runs. And uh, I've never had the same build twice. There's an awful lot going on. Actually, I haven't even seen all the boons at this point. I think each of the gods has something like 20 to 30 different boons, including a number of them that are duo boons they use. If you have, like, I don't know, Artemis and um, Zeus going together. If you have certain boons from each of them, you might qualify for this super powerful boon from both of them. Yeah, you're getting sort of, in my opinion, the Bastion DNA and the, the weapons, uh, the iteration of layering combinations uh, brings in some stuff from Transistor, and then Pyre's persistent storytelling sort of framing everything. It's really a nice, you know, conglomeration of, of everything that they've done, and then they ratchet up the tightness of the combat, where it almost feels like a combination of Bastion's combat mixed with doom eternals you know it's just so fast-paced and so tight and it requires your attention at every moment when yeah when there's a lot going on on the screen yeah that's a good that's a really good uh call out but with doom where you're constantly dashing all over the place you dash you attack dash attack like that's what this is like just constant action and unlike other roguelikes where i feel like you got to play it safe uh, because, you know, you're gonna, you know, it's it's run-based. You're, when you're dead, you're dead. This one, it forces you to get right in those people's faces the whole time, which is kind of cool. Especially with certain weapon sets. Yeah, it definitely weirdly evoked a lot of feelings of playing Doom while I was playing it, which I did not expect from a, a, a super giant roguelike game. But uh, here we are, and yeah. it's a masterpiece. You're fighting your way out of hell instead of into hell. It's, it's almost the same <laughs> thing, just in reverse. <laughs> yeah, um, forgive me for b- blowing a three-word review here, but it's uh, a reverse Diablo. Oh, wow. <laughs> spoiler! Oh, man, spoil- I thought this was a spoiler-free podcast. That's what I thought. Oh, well. we'll no, we'll- it's not. that's not my three-word review. Don't worry, I got another. Brian wrote ten of them. He's going to read all, all ten of them here in a little bit. Well, um, you guys were speaking a little bit about Doom. One of the things that reminded me heavily of Doom was this game was a very room-based combat kind of thing where you'd run in there or you'd come into a room and enemies would spawn around you and there'd be this very intense action sequence uh very much like doom had as well you had your um i don't know three or four big rooms per level uh that you had to clear before you got to the next stage um and it was a very 
intense moment, and then you had some more, uh, you had a little bit of a relaxation in between, kind of keeping the pacing varied. Um, now, this is something I've been thinking about adding to one of the own games I'm designing. Uh, what do you guys think about having that kind of pacing of combat, having, you know, high intense action and then a little bit of rest in between? Like, how did this game do it well? Because I think this game did it very well. So I think the, especially when you start to develop the the game further in terms of utilizing the contractor to add new rooms, uh, finding those rest rooms where you get the fountain uh, was just an amazing feeling when it happened. So I definitely agree that the highs and lows, ebbs and flows of, of combat and how there's always a restroom after the boss, not a restroom, a rest. <laughs> You're not You're taking not? a shit in the underworld. I don't know what Pissing game I'm the fountains. Playing, That's what his you know what is. <laughs> you know what I mean. A room but, for resting. Yeah, a, a, yeah, a respite. Um, but yeah, so I think that's a masterstroke. Like, absolutely, I think that the ebb and flow of that type of um, tension is what makes uh, each air, or each type of mode, you know, the hectic combat versus the, the resting, feel so much more potent. I agree. And then beyond the porta potties that uh, Brian <laughs> was talking about here. Uh, uh, yes, the old shittero Hades. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's, that's the last porta potty. A porta potty in hell is the last porta potty you want to go in. But anyway, there's all there, there's also um, these rooms in in, in each uh, biome, I guess, where there's a possibility for a narrative uh, story as well. So there are quite a few characters that start popping in, and actually, a lot of them you don't even see. Some of them you don't see to beat the game, and some of them even further than that, um, mm -hmm. where, where new entire narratives open up, and then. Like, I found myself, like, hoping, like, oh, I hope I meet this person on, on this run-through. And it wasn't even because of something they could give me. It was because of something that I thought that they might uh, add to the story. So that was kind of cool. But I think, Josh, when we're talking about how that all plays together, if you keep it high-octane combat the whole time, uh, you lose people. Like, mm -hmm. you, you have to give them a moment to sit back and reflect. And it's the, it's... Almost that anticipation, too, when it slows down. People know it's about to kick back into high gear, and it also kind of makes it that much sweeter when it does kick back in. So it, It's a bonfire syndrome. You just feel so good when you finally hit that new bonfire. Sit down. You know what I'm talking about. It's Dark Souls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, I feel like with this game, too, um, it was a very kind of legible structure. Like, after you played a few times, you would know what was going on. Uh, here's your big combat fight, and then you have a moment to relax and smash some urns looking for spare change. Um, and then you know you get to the next room, there's going to be another big fight going on. Um, so it wasn't like something like maybe Dark Souls where there's ambushes and you don't know what's going on as much. I think that was p possibly a point in its favor too. It was uh, The pacing felt more deliberate. A different type of feeling, but a very very well done and well executed. They also telegraph things very well too. So there's um, obviously like many roguelikes, there's, there's varying paths, right? So this reminded me again, I'm not as well versed as you guys are in roguelikes, but this reminded me a bit of slay the spire where you've got multiple paths and you can choose ahead of time. Like, okay, well this, I'm going to choose risk versus reward here because I want this kind of outcome. So you know what you can earn if you go into this next uh, diverging path. But the other cool thing is there's certain things that are only for this run and only and things that are persistent throughout. So there's certain kinds of uh, 
I guess, currency, if you want to call it that, that can do different things that persist, like darkness or the gems or the uh, the nectar, th- th- things like that. And, and, and they even had different colored doors based on, is this something that helps you in your run or is this something that helps you persistently? And it kind of helped you make those decisions clearer. I, I really like that. It helped you strategize a bit. Yeah, after each of these rooms, after each of these big fights, you would get a reward, whether it was a boon from an Olympian god or darkness points you could spend to power yourself up in future runs. Each thing was a each uh, combat had a treasure that appeared afterwards that helped you out. Yep, uh, even things such as the Chthonic Keys, which unlock new weapons, or the Ambrosia, which will help you strengthen your NPC relationships. All of these are found uh, as you're traversing your way, and you're choosing to go pursue those as you make your way out of the underworld. So every room you go into is progressing you along the power curve in one way or another, um, which is uh, sort of Hades' trick. Every run is guaranteed to make you get better in some way. It removes some randomness aspect of the roguelike that might cause you to have a shit run that lasts five minutes. Yeah, I actually felt for once that this was a roguelike that actually paced well. Uh, I never got tired of what I was doing. So like, let's say I was really slamming my head against that second world boss. I never got to a point where I was like, okay, I cannot get any further than this. This is it. Like the the per, the persistent changes you were able to make if you made, you know, some conscious effort towards it was enough to push you through to the next thing. I never got stuck on one thing for too long where I didn't enjoy it. So that was really good. I'm sure that was hard to pace out properly and it, they did it really, really well. Another interesting thing from a roguelike perspective is that in this whole game in my 50 something runs there's only been one run that I've abandoned because I thought my I had the suboptimal set of like uh, boons and whatnot uh, for other things. So there's other games I've played a lot of other roguelikes where if I you get to a certain point and it's like a I don't know you guys just played Tony Hawk again I know and you'll go through a level in Tony Hawk and you're like oh damn I missed that kickflip over there I'm just gonna start back over. And I remember playing Tony Hawk myself, and it would be like the first 10 seconds. Oh, I fucked up. Time to restart. <laughs> um, so this game, there's only one time that whole time, uh, my whole playing experience where I thought, this run isn't worth continuing. I'm just going to start over. So they have a very, uh, there's randomness to it in the builds you'll have, but it's not easy to make a bad build. Agree. Yeah, the synergies that they are able to to pull together, or that they somehow make work, uh, regardless of which two or which you know set of maybe three or four gods end up appearing on a given run, is astounding. Like somehow they all do seem to have interesting interplays with each other and the weapons. So there's so many dimensions of what you can get on a given run um, that yeah, you're not really heavily incentivized to just give up on a run because either way, you're also still gathering stuff that'll help you along that power curve in the broad sense. It's got good long-term goals. They have a really good long-term progression, too, with the weapons. There's six major different weapons your character can use as they're trying to escape from the underworld. Uh, And the weapons... Obviously, you know, you have like, oh, they have different playing styles. You got swords, spears, bows, uh, shields that you use, fists, fists and a uh, shotgun or uh, rifle or something <laughs> like that. You mean the adamant rail, a very popular <laughs> weapon of the early Greek, you know, Aegean 
civilization, of course. Oh, they work that in the backstory, too. It's uh, it's the one weapon, quote-unquote, that hasn't found its way out of the underworld yet. Uh, yet, they say. Yeah. No oh, man. Have you guys started finding the secret aspects of the weapons yet? Because there are quite a few that have future aspects. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but like, uh, I'm gonna minor spoiler, but the the uh, hidden aspect of the sword is actually King Arthur's sword. Oh, well, that's cool. Sort of like a thing out of time, or maybe they're alluding to the fact that this a game future. is taking place in the future. They kind I, of cross I, mythologies. I've gotten the spear and the shield, and both refer to mythological weapons and artifacts from other cultures and time periods yeah. besides just the Greeks. Like um, the shield becomes the shield that Beowulf is going to use later on, which I think was about a thousand years after the Greeks. Shit, I got to play more of this game. It's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, but what I was just saying with the, uh, you have the six different weapons, and they are very different in their play styles. And at the beginning of the game, that presents to you a huge variety of options of things you can take on different runs to mix it up a little bit. Then later on, each of the weapons has four different aspects you can unlock. And these aspects will vary up the moves Usually a little bit, but with these hidden ones, it varies it up more significantly. Um, but still, it's you know, it's not the same. Going between different aspects of the spear is not the same as going from a spear to a bow in terms oh, of strategy. Yeah. But these are things that come at you later in the game when you're more skilled of a player, when you know what's going on better, and when you've got a hold on, you know, here's your basic spear techniques, here's your basic sword techniques. You know what those are, but those aspects add additional variation that you appreciate once you're at that late game stage. So just a quick, uh, I guess, a pull for the room here. Uh, What did you make your first successful attempt out of Hades with? For me, it was the bow. Uh, I just, I believe it was a bow build with Artemis, the critical hit um, build. And I just uh, kept my distance and played it safe and lobbed a lot of uh, Dionysus grenades and shot a bunch of bow. Nice. What about you, Josh? My first successful escape was with the spear, but I will say my favorite weapon, I think, is the shield. Interesting. Yeah, my, my first escape out was uh, with a, was the spear, and I believe it was with Athena, who's a very defensive-based uh, build. For anybody that's struggling, if you're playing this game and, and you're not sure, you're not making good progress, the, I would say that the spear is your most rounded-out weapon. It's got both close and far-range <laughs> Uh, abilities so if you're struggling with the sword that you get at the beginning maybe try that instead it'll help Mm -hmm. agreed uh speaking of uh progressing through the game you initially start off uh just barely making your way through the first level tartarus you know the lowest level of of hell right outside the door of the house of hades uh, and then eventually you're making your way through a few other areas asphodel elysium you know all known greek areas um, I don't know how much further we want to talk about that. I say we don't say anything and let people find out. One thing that I do want to mention is there are the four major levels 
in the game, and the fourth one did an interesting thing to mix things up. Instead of these wide open rooms, all of a sudden you were playing in close quarters. And that mm. really, the first time I got there, that really messed up my strategy, because I was all trying to be the ranged sniper in that run, and you weren't able to uh, give yourself enough room between you and the enemies. It makes you... It's a small difference that had a big impact on With, your tactics and strategy. Yeah, without spoiling anything, I would say that, that fourth the fourth and final biome is... It can really screw you up. The best laid plans throughout the first three can be totally destroyed if you have a bad run through that fourth one. It forces you to be well-rounded, which uh, also incentivizes you not uh, getting rid of a run if a boon doesn't fit your build, quote-unquote. Because if you think about it, like having a boon that doesn't fit your build will probably end up helping you for this switch of strategy required in the, the fourth biome. For sure, there's actually certain ones that were I considered completely useless throughout the first three that I'm like, wait a minute, if I take this now... <laughs> this is my salvation. <laughs> yeah, this will help me out a ton in that last one, so I'm going to do this and, uh, and hope for the best. Mm -hmm. That's a great call-out, and of course, each biome is, is capped off by a boss, and the bosses are really great and really uh, pretty memorable, and the cool thing that they do with them is they switch up mechanics that they present, or even characters that are presented within them in terms of the first one over time. Yeah, so like, again, first and second. On, on, on run 60, I still feel like I'm seeing enough new stuff that it keeps it interesting. It's not the same thing every time. There are multiple mini-bosses per area. There's, you know, multiple boss choices in, in some areas, and they're still adding new stuff 50, 60 runs in. So it keeps it fresh, even when you think you've seen it all. One of the interesting things they do to kind of keep the game challenging for you, you know, you gotta beat it ten times apparently to get to the next juicy bit of storytelling. Um, they do these things called packs of punishment once you get out of there the first time. And these are optional difficulty multipliers you can add on to your run. Things like taking extra damage from traps or giving the bosses extra move sets. Or giving the enemies extra damage. You know, there's, I think, probably um, between 10 and 20 of them you can pick. Um, but they, if you choose a Pact of Punishment, it allows you to regain the rewards you need to power up your weapons, deck out the halls of the dead with, you know, all the best swag, um, improve, you know, the rooms and the fountains that you find along your way. Um, so... I felt like that touch of giving you those rewards again when you did a weapon with the higher levels of difficulty with more of these packs of punishment, it gave you the reward for doing it again, and it gave you a really good reason to try to do those in the first place. I was just, oh yeah, I was, I was going to say, uh, again, we kind of mentioned it off the top, um, but this is the first game that's actually made subsequent runs interesting. I have done all 10 to get to the final ending and plus a little bit more. And I have played quite a bit, bit with that with those heat settings and they do significantly change the gameplay. Now, a lot of times you'll get for games like this, you'll see options like, I don't know, increase the enemy's damage by 10%. You're like, okay, that makes it harder, but not necessarily more interesting. There's quite a few of these and and Josh, you're right. I think there is about 20 of these and with multiple levels per each that can completely change how the game plays out entirely. 
and in interesting to... ways too. I remember yeah. the first one I took was uh, the enemy. All enemies negate the first hit they take, and I'm like, oh, that sounds easy. I'll just hit him again. I got two through two or three levels of this, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is much harder than I anticipated. Yeah. I've actually beaten the game with that doubled where the first two hits mean mean nothing. And when you're getting in one of those rooms where you're getting swarmed by the skulls or by some of those other things, that really starts to punish. But yeah, that's just one example of, of like, again, like, like 20. I've also done the, the ones that add extra movesets to all the bosses. Crazy. Mm-hmm. It completely changes every boss in the game. Well, the thing is with a roguelike, you get to learn the bosses. Like every boss I came across... I died to a couple of times until I learned their patterns, and then I stood a chance against them. When you add in new movesets for them, that changes their attack patterns. You don't know what's going on again. I think that's a good way to like keep you on your toes when you're in the late game. For sure. But I would say, let's not spoil too much, I think one of the best things about this game was the discovery and the fun of seeing everything for the first time. All I, all I will venture to say is that if you keep going with it, you will continue to find plenty of reasons to continue playing the game and not uh insignificant among those reasons is you get to see more of the incredible art and the amazing music that uh is is going on while you're uh navigating your way out of the underworld so the art you know once again it's gorgeous it's the the signature super giant house style gen z puts on a master class and her her art department there at super giant just makes uh an astounding portrayal of all of these different gods like they just seem perfect to me like they like perfectly portray what we're supposed to be going for with with each god i don't know why but and and maybe this is why i love it so much but it reminds me of 90s marvel comic book art Mm -hmm. and that is my that that's like my my home base i i I love that stuff growing up and this their art style really reminds me of that especially in this game i mean let's get it out of the way everyone's very attractive there's thick line drawing uh it's very like you know, it's a super hand-drawn look. It is very personal. It's good art. And, you know, it just, it elicits a feeling when you see, you know, uh, one of the gods come up for the first time. You're like, yep, that's what the god of war should look like. Or, yeah, that's exactly what I think of when I think of Dionysus. Yeah, Brian, you mentioned the music also. I think this is one of the few games where I've walked into a room, heard a song playing, literally stopped, put my controller down so that I could hear <laughs> the rest of the song and then continued. <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely very clear that Darren Korb was listening to the Doom soundtrack when he <laughs> recorded this. Like, it's basically acoustic Doom Eternal. Uh, the Meg, um, or rather the Fury fight in particular, to me, uh, reminds me quite a bit of something I would have heard in Doom. Yeah, I think it's the, the, the quiet, subtle moments that, that he even shines even brighter, which, again, Fair not point. to give too much away with, but uh, uh, Orpheus and Eurydice, when you get them in in a room together singing, I literally, I, I stopped and I listened to the music for about five or six minutes before I continued playing. Yeah, 
I definitely agree, and it's it's extremely well done. Um, and despite the fact that they probably had to do a lot of recording for some of the later stuff in uh, in their own homes, uh, you know, as we work remotely during the global pandemic, it is really something that this all came together in such an astounding and cohesive way. Agree. I would have never known that they weren't all together all the time, being super collaborative. Again, it's it's hard to be collaborative when when you're not in the same room, but they. We didn't feel that at all, I don't think, in the end product. Mm-hmm. I think it helps that you have almost two years of uh, experience working together on the same game before the pandemic strikes and everyone has to scatter off a bit. Absolutely. I mean, the team's certainly grown over the years, but the the core team is still there. And there's only, as I understand it, been a handful of people total that have left this team over time. They've just sort of snowballed their, their studio. You know, the original founders are still involved. Uh, some of the original engineers and artists from, you know, as I, we've mentioned, Gen Z and Darren Korb and all these names that like are in the, uh, basically the indie pantheon of, of, uh, artists and game developers and they're all on the same team like of course they're gonna make a great game <laughs> yeah i'm gonna have to go back and play i mean they were on my list anyway but i'm gonna have to go back and play the rest of their games because after playing this one if this is any bit like the rest of their games they're all worth playing we played uh bastion and pyre before i know brian played transistor i just bought that myself i'd say between bastion and pyre i liked bastion myself better gotcha it's definitely on the list for this for this winter. I, I played all of them, and I, I like all of them for different reasons, but to me, this is a quantum leap for the team. Like, I, I really do think that they brought it all together for this one, and it's their finest work by far. I think it's their finest work, but not by far, perhaps. Hmm. Do you think that the reason that they were able to make that big of a leap was because of this early access? So, in my mind, we keep talking about all the polish and how everything was so well uh, put together and we talked about how these gods have 20 boons each and there's eight of them and how all those things still manage to be uh, tight and and balanced I think that all comes from being able to push development out over a long period of time with excessive play testing and without a deadline looming over like we've made zero dollars we need to get this out now I think they probably really were able to make a much better product because they, they took that approach I think you're you're definitely right in in that, but I think it's also a team really knowing its strengths and then adapting them to the best idea they had at hand. Um, the interesting thing that I find about Supergiant is that none of the games that they've developed so far have been in the same style. The first one's an in action RPG, or really just an in action sort of beat 'em up. The second one's a turn based tactics game. The third one's basically a fantasy sports game, and now we've got a roguelike. So you know, say what you will, but they're clearly just applying their greatest strengths to whatever form the story they have takes in terms of the medium. Uh, I definitely felt like there was a lot of Bastion DNA in this game. In fact, they did a little Agreed. bit of a callback to that. The Daedalus hammer is mm-hmm. the same hammer you use in Bastion. Yeah, it's this, It's basically the exact same model as the, the Kale hammer, I think, or something like that um, from Bastion, which is cool. Uh, I, love a, I love a developer with some history. A little bit of an Easter egg. One of the interesting things I noticed as a game designer, and again, comparing this to Rogue Legacy. In Rogue Legacy, you died, and it takes you to a screen where you build a fortress, you spend the money you have, and then you start your next run. In Hades, you 
you come back through the pool of the dead, go through the halls of Hades, talk to all these different people, get all these juicy bits of new story and dialogue. Maybe you unlock a few things, you know, unlock a new weapon aspect or a new weapon or something like that. Um, you eventually, you spend like five or ten minutes going through the halls of the dead and upgrading the fountains or the hallways or putting new decorations in, getting your upgrades at the different areas. You go through to the training room where you uh, pick a keepsake and what, what you see what weapon gives you the extra bonus. And at that point, you're already kind of like committed, like, oh, I'm right here. I might as well start another run. I've never not. I got to be honest. <laughs> it was a very good way to like keep that loop going on. It, um, it's kind of like you have the momentum. You're already you're already right here. You might as well start the next run right now and just just kind of see what your f- first boon is going to be. And just, oh, well just clear the first boss. And oh look, you spent another hour on this game again. That sense of momentum really gets kicked off right at the start. Right before we started recording this podcast, I started a new game, like new save file, just because I couldn't remember how the game exactly kicked off. There's literally a 30-second cutscene where, you know, they lay out uh, Hades, like, saying, you'll never escape, blah, 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 and then it immediately just drops you into the first run, where you have no power-ups, you know, no nothing. You'll be extremely skilled to make it to the first boss, and you'll probably die there with 99% likelihood and just ricocheting between my current Zagreus and that was just a really like eye-opening thing because you forget about all the things that they hide off the bat and that they slowly unpeel as you go through um, the different there are a few runs like the lounge isn't even open after the first run yeah they Mm -hmm. introduce the mirror to you after the first run all of your weapons except the sword are locked at the beginning I didn't even see Thanatos until after I'd beaten the game and done another three or four successful runs like it's a main character not even not even uh, seen for the first time It's, it's just crazy they continually add things like Sisyphus Patroclus uh, Eurydice, they're constantly giving you something new, and it's not just like, oh, here's a random new thing. Like, no, here's a completely new character that will change the arc of this story entirely. Yeah, it'll change your, it'll change your, any given run entirely. Yeah, a new reason to keep fighting. And with that, why don't we go to some three-word reviews? So I'll kick us off, and my three-word review is an auteur apotheosis, and I can feel Clint rolling his eyes. Um, Hang on, I'm looking up the word apotheosis right now. (laughs) All right, so if you've watched Supergiant from the start, as I've talked about throughout this cast, you can start to see all of what they've built there. Uh, the The music of Darren Korb, the art of Gen Z, the DNA from the previous games that they've had, all rolled into this. Uh, it is basically all of the mechanics and all of the uh, specialties that they have rolled up and taken to the next level. It is, if you will, an apotheosis of their form. A huge thumbs up, uh, unparalleled recommendation for sure. So apotheosis means exaltation to divine rank or stature, deification. So props to Brian for the good vocabulary <laughs> word right there. This game was a thumbs up for me as well. My three-word review for this game is tightly woven tapestry. 
This game combines so many different elements of things that make Supergiant games good. Great music, great art, really good, tight core gameplay. And that combat loop, it just keeps you going. It keeps you coming back for more. It's a very, very tight combat. Uh, the actions you take, they fe- they're very satisfying. The little bits of feedback you get, the, the UI polish, they all add up to have a superior experience with this game. So mine is a tightly woven tapestry. And mine would have to be the new standard. So for me, uh, roguelikes, as popular as they are, have never landed quite right with me. There's been a couple that have like, okay, I like pieces of this or pieces of that, but this is the first roguelike game for me that I have absolutely enjoyed, beginning to end. And if you made me say a bad thing about it, I would have a hard time finding something. Like, I'm really thinking about it. The music, the story, the the gameplay, every bit about it is, is wonderful. It's very clear here that this is a team that knows who they are, what they're about, and they have no problem putting that out there. I really enjoyed um, the way that they gave an interwoven narrative throughout this uh, multi-run kind of game. I really hope that this kind of thing takes on and this is where the genre goes. Um, I think that I will probably play every super giant game that they've ever made after this <laughs> and any one that they make after this. Like I, I'm so excited uh, to have found this gem and I really think that anybody with $25 should play this game. Seconded. And thirded. All right. For us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skirsha. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones. Take care and keep on gaming. Well, since we were talking about this earlier today, guys, I figure we'll bring it up now. This has nothing to do with the podcast, but whatever. We're talking about early access and when it works and when it doesn't. Everybody was supremely annoyed with, um, as I was, about Baldur's Gate 3 being uh, early access. I did find something out, though. Every other game Lyrian has ever done has been early access, including Divinity 2, which a lot of us would consider to be... Is that Pretty a quasi, quasi-AAA game? I don't really know. It... it- it can pass as one for sure. I mean, it, it has a ton of content. It's extremely well done. I loved Divinity Original Sin 2, and uh, the only reason I didn't finish it is because it's fucking long. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm sure Baldur's Gate's kind of the same thing, and I get why they're doing what they're doing, but um, I don't know. Like, it feels weird to me when you have an arguably AAA game in early access, but, you know, if it's going to work for their development process, then go with God. Yeah, I mean, the more we talked about I've been annoyed by it. The more we talked about it, the more okay I am with it, especially after we talked through this whole Hades thing. And I really do believe after our conversation earlier that the early access was the special sauce. It's what made this, because they interacted with their community so well, that's what made this game so good. If they'd have had to, re- if they'd have had to release a half a year earlier and without, you know feedback because they had to hurry up and get some money in like I don't think it would have been nearly as good I think it was good because they were able to slow roll it and really take some community feedback so I hope that's what they're doing 
And I think there's enough of a community of people that, you know, do rally around early access games and are eager to provide feedback, you know, that yeah. that it's 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 works, you know, and maybe those people just aren't us and that's fine. Like we don't have to be those people. We're busy. Agree. Um, <laughs> but there's just... plenty of like college students maybe that like are interested in game dev or computer science that might or other things that want to play and give feedback on these things and who knows maybe that leads to something all in all like if it works for the company it's not hurting anyone go for it you know thinking back even things like world of warcraft juggernaut the uh of a game that had a closed beta period and maybe the early access model is really just kind of opening that up i mean they're still charging 60 dollars full price for a game coming out in early access I've kind of, you know, when I first heard the news, I was not pleased with it, but I'm kind of thinking, like, okay, this is really just their beta that they're opening up to the true fans, um, capital T, capital F, people who have, you know, they loved Baldur's Gate 2, and they want to not only play Baldur's Gate 3, but have a larger impact on what game it turns out to be than if they just bought it at release. And I think I think I'm okay with that. Yeah. I think I mentioned too. Some games have been trying this for a while. Like I said, Call of Duty and Battlefield have been doing this for years. If you buy the game, you get to be part of the multiplayer alpha, multiplayer beta, all that stuff. So you get to like help play test the game ahead of time. And there is a certain group of people that are super excited for that. So when it's a multiplayer thing, I'm all in. Like, there's no secrets there. Like, I want to be part of all that. I want to get to see it first. I really enjoyed that, but with the, like a bespoke single player experience, like I don't want to see it until you're ready to unveil the whole thing. Well, I see where you're coming from. I think that type of person exists for the single player kind of thing too. Oh yeah. Like, uh, how many guys do you know that are like, oh yeah, I knew the bi- I knew this band before they were cool. Same thing with the early access. It's like, oh yeah, I played that game when it was uh, an alpha or beta or early access or whatever. Like, you feel a tighter connection to the creators when you do that. Which Those guys you are real have. Dionysus, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so, one other thing I did before we get too off track really want to talk about specifically about Hades was how well this game did um, the reason I played 55 hours it's it's really hard to sit down and time commitment be like I'm gonna play four hours of this game even though you end up doing it it's hard it's hard to put that aside up front so games like Ghost of Tsushima where I know I'm gonna dig in for an hour or two it's hard for me to want to sit down because I'm not sure I have that kind of commitment in me. But we talked about this sometimes with games on the, on the Switch, like Into the Breach. Um, but this game was so bite-sized that it really worked very, very well. Uh, you could sit down and be like, ah, I'll just get through this one biome and it'll be fine. Now granted, you're gonna get through 12 because you can't put it down, but you have the option of starting a run playing through a couple of stages, and then you can put it down. And they have a, a, a save. LOL. Um, like, right. I've they, ever done that. Right. But they do <laughs> they, they, they do have a save mechanic where you can stop. Saves like, every room. Yep. Yeah. And then you can keep going right where you left off. And it's no big deal, and it's easy to put down and pick up, and it makes it super digestible. Diegetic, one might say. And... <laughs> <laughs> It's cut. It's cut. It doesn't count. It's cutting that out. It doesn't count. (laughs) 